We're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 2. If you'd like to turn there, Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, this is a heavy chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole thing for you. Pastor Matt's going to walk through that with us and dig a little deeper as we read. Um, but I want to just set the stage for him before he comes to teach. So we're just going to read the first four verses in Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anita. Well, uh, I am, I'm just going to have a confession moment. I am a skeptical individual. And what I mean by that is that if you were to bring forward to me a new idea, I would immediately be skeptical towards it. Uh, Maybe you've spoken to somebody before, and one of their rejections towards Christianity is, I'm not really into that sort of thing because I'm more facts-based and I'm more science-based. And typically of those individuals, like myself, we're a little bit more skeptical to some more existential questions or philosophical questions of what's the meaning and purpose of the world, how did it all begin, these things I think we can all understand. So you might be sitting here today and you would say, yes, I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptical individual as well. Now, not only am I skeptical towards ideas that are brought towards me, but I'm also a type one in the Enneagram, which means that I'm also skeptical internally. So if I'm going to be critical of things on the outside, I'm even more critical of things going on on the inside of me. And so one of the main ways that this actually rears its head in my life, and I experienced it in a really intense way growing up, and then even now into adult life, is that if I'm going to do something, or if I'm going to commit to doing something, I need to make sure that I'm going to be awesome at it. Uh, And so as a result, I rarely will actually take on things that I don't know that I can fully succeed at or I don't know that there's going to be great results. Uh, I want to share one example with you a few years ago. I, was, uh, I started training for a, a marathon. Now, I didn't initially, in the beginning stages, train, start as the training for the marathon. I started going out on Tuesday nights to run with the Guelph Victors, which is a running group here in town. And a couple of my other friends were also running uh, in that group. And I was going because I wanted to just pick up my speed a little bit when I was running. And Andre was part of the running group, and so I was going down with them. And a couple of my friends that were there, they were beginning to train for a marathon. And so they asked me, they said, Matt, do you want to run this marathon with us. And as I've said, my type of personality is I'm only going to run a marathon if I know 100% I'm going to be able to actually complete it, that I'm actually going to be able to run the full 42.2 kilometers and be totally okay. And not only that I'm going to do it, but I'm actually going to do a good job at it. Like, I don't just want to cross the finish line seven hours later. Like, I want to have some sort of good pace. And so what happened was I, I began to sort of edge my way into, and my, this is the way I did it. My friend said, well, um, we were running 10K on Tuesdays, and he said, well, why don't you come out next weekend, and we'll run 25 together, and I'm like, okay, yeah, 25, good jump, right, and so we went out the next weekend, and and we did. He was very gracious towards me, and we went out, and we ran 
the 25. And then the next weekend he said, you know, why don't you come out again next week and we'll run 30 next week. And I'm like, yeah, 30, why not? And so we went out the next week and ran a little bit more and uh, almost to the 30 marker. And then that was when I felt like I had enough assurance, right? I had enough proof to myself that, you know what? 42.2 is only 12 more than 30. Uh, maybe we can actually do this. And so I remember I, I came back uh, to, uh, to Andre, and I was like, Andre, I'm going to commit to doing this. And I went online, and I signed up for the marathon. And that's a very scary experience because you're suddenly like, now I have to do it. Um, and then that, that particular day in May came, and I have a picture, actually, of myself and Andrea. Uh, this was at the finish line of the Toronto Good Life um, Marathon. And, and this experience, especially in that moment, I was in so much pain standing there uh, after the 42.2 kilometers. Because in, in your training, uh, I at least never ran the full 42.2. Uh, we only ran up to about 35 kilometers. But the experience of a marathon has actually now become an incredible testimony to what the Christian life is all about. It's become an incredible example that I look back on in my life, and I remember through running the marathon, there were complete strangers, and some of you have seen runs happen. You see all these people, you know, draped across the city, and maybe for you it's like, oh, that's so inconvenient because now the city is like gridlocked, but as a runner and somebody that you have no idea at 30 kilometers is cheering you on because your name is on your bib. And they literally call it a bib, by the way. It's not like you're, some people drool and stuff, but it's a bib. And so people are like, go, Matthew, you can do it. And you're like, I don't know who you are, man, but you're helping me. And like they genuinely, genuinely keep you going the next few kilometers or the next even 100 meters at certain points. Now, as we now transition to Hebrews chapter 2, the experience of a marathon and the experience of continuing to pursue Jesus through pain, through suffering, through things that seem like, how could I actually do this, is the experience of those that are being uh, written to in Hebrews. Uh, many of these people, as we discussed last week in an introduction format, are Jewish Christians that have come to know Jesus. So, as I said last week, they're born Jewish, and they then come to know Jesus. And there is incredible tension, and there's incredible persecution upon them to revert, to go away from their newfound faith, and to revert back to Judaism. In many ways, like for me, running the marathon and just thinking, it would be so much easier just to stop at this moment. And so what our author and what our orator, as we said last week, wants to do as he moves into chapter 2 is to provide proof, is to provide evidence. Because in chapter 1, he breaks down, he says, okay, you've trusted in Jesus, but let's be really clear about the identity of who Jesus is. And then we discovered and found out that at the time, there was a big debate going on in the culture about the superiority of angels. Uh, during the writing of the Old Testament and then the New Testament, there was great debate and there was people suggesting that angels are superior to the gods. And so what our orator is trying to say in chapter 1 was, this is who Jesus is and this is how Jesus is actually superior to the angels. So in some ways, you know, I imagine not many of us woke up this morning and thought, I really think angels are superior to Jesus. But that is what's going on in this text. And so what our author here is trying to help the people understand is that you can trust that Jesus is who he says he is. You can trust that he is actually reliable. 
And so as you're maybe skeptical towards the idea, don't be skeptical. You can do it. Keep going. Press on. Lean into Jesus. So as we approach this text this morning, just keep that in your minds as we address what the author says in an extremely dense way. Maybe you've read Hebrews 2 before and you've finished it and you've been like, what did he just say? Uh, after I read it uh, earlier in the week, as I was beginning preparation, I was like, okay, I need to read some commentaries because what's he trying to get at? Could he have not have just said it more clearly? So, as I said, the point being is you can trust Jesus because Jesus has done something for you that you could not do for yourself. That's the large idea. So let's jump in, all right? Verse 1 of chapter 2, he writes, Therefore... Therefore, always is picking up. Whenever you see therefore in the scriptures, you got to imagine that he's building upon an argument of what has come before. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. The question, obviously, is what, is, what have we heard? And that's the lesson of chapter 1, that Jesus is who he says he is, and that Jesus is superior to angels. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Why must we pay closer attention to what we've heard? He finishes the sentence, lest we drift away from it. As last week, we discussed that you can become so familiar with Jesus that you actually begin to drift away from Jesus. You can become so overwhelmed by the intensity of life that at times can feel like a marathon that you drift away from wanting to actually engage with it in a meaningful way. And so what our author is saying here is pay close attention to what you have heard. That's going to be the signpost to bring you back. Because the propensity is going to be for you to actually drift away from the truth. You're not, not going to actually want to place your hope and faith in the right things. You're going to want to drift. Now, the question for, the, for those of us in this room might be like, well, what's wrong with drifting? <laughs> Isn't it okay to go on a little bit of a drift every now and then? The author writes in verse 2, For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Okay, what did our author just say? What our author is saying here is he's going to compare back and forth between two ideas or two concepts. And what he's saying here in the beginning parts of this verse is to say that what the angels said was reliable. We could trust what they said of the various announcements that they made. So therefore, we can trust what they said. But then he goes on in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The contrast here is how shall we neglect such a great salvation? And this is the great salvation that's provided by Jesus and his gospel message. So what our author is saying is, if we could trust the reliability of the angel's message, we certainly must trust the reliability of Jesus Christ's message. And why this is important is that if you drift away from Jesus Christ's message, you're not just drifting away from some belief in who Jesus is. You're drifting away into territory where there are consequences for your drifting. There are consequences for your bad ideas. If you begin to believe that Jesus isn't who he says he is, that Jesus didn't actually claim that he's the only way to heaven, that Jesus allows anybody into heaven, no matter what they believe, as long as they're committed to what they believe, you're neglecting the very salvation that you committed to in the first place. Now, I think we can, some of us at least, can attest to people that we know that have experienced this. Where what began as firm belief 
transitioned in their life away from what has been known as firm or orthodox belief. We, we understand the drift. We understand that. And what our author is trying to say here is, listen, you're facing persecution. You're recognizing the challenge that it is to follow Jesus as, as a person that was Jewish and now a Jewish Christian. But you need to understand, if you drift, there's not just the consequences of, well, you know, I'm just, you know, thinking about new ideas. He's like, you could come to neglect the very salvation that you received in the first place. Be careful. Pay attention. He goes on, how do we know that this is reliable? How do we know that we can trust what Jesus says is true? Verse 3b, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the question is, how do we know that the word of Jesus' superiority, that he is in fact better than the angels, and he does in fact provide salvation, how can we trust that that's a reliable message? And that's what many people in our culture, and maybe even you here today are saying, is I would take Christianity more seriously if I could trust the people that shared the message in the first place. And there's four things that our author, our orator, points out here about why we can trust this message. And the first reason, he says, is because it was at first declared by the Lord himself, the Son that we know and learn from in chapter 1. We can trust him because he's the Son. He's the divine Son. He's superior. Secondly, not only can we trust him because of what he said, of what Jesus said about himself, we can also trust him because other people that were with Jesus also said the same things about him as well. It's the credibility of an eyewitness, right? We, we have uh, various times when people go into court. We want witnesses. We want eyewitnesses. What our author is saying, you can trust what Jesus has said because there's eyewitnesses that have attested to us what they have heard and what they saw. Thirdly, it's testified by God through signs and wonders and various miracles. He's saying Jesus performed miracles. He cast out demons, we can talk and we can think about the stories of those people and also speak to people that were present at that time. You can trust Jesus. And then fourth, we can attest to this truth because of gifts from the Holy Spirit. We can trust that the gifts of the Holy Spirit have proven to us that things are reliable. Now, as I said, I'm a skeptical person, and what typically is that of skeptical people who want more uh, science or proven fact is that supernatural things— are like, uh, stay away from me, right? We struggle with the supernatural. But here's the thing. There is power in the supernatural. When you do experience something that is supernatural, even for the skeptic and even for the person that says, I need fact, when you witness or see someone being healed, for example, to pray over someone's hand as we did more recently, I prayed over someone's wrist that it would be healed, and God healed the wrist. You go, okay, I can trust them. It's that little step of faith at times when even I'm struggling with, like, God, can I truly trust you? Okay, that, that wrist was healed. Praise God, the wrist was healed. It's those little bits of evidence and proof that challenge us and push us along in our faith journeys. 
And so what the author is saying is we can trust him not only because the message that was proven to be reliable, we can also trust him based on the experiences that people that we have spoken to have had of Jesus. But here's the really interesting thing about the human condition. And this is our application from the first four verses, is that we have the tendency and the propensity to drift despite clear evidence. You and I know this, right? The human condition is that of which we still drift. We still have that propensity to. Like you can surround yourself by people in a missional community. You can participate in reunions. You can read your Bible regularly. You can know that if you don't do some of those things, you're going to drift. That's clear evidence. Yet times you will still drift. I know for me, the way that I struggle the most in trusting God and trusting Jesus and trusting the Holy Spirit is in the comfort aspect of my life. So I can read in the scriptures, for example, Psalm 23 verse 1 has got to be the most challenging verse for me in the entirety of the Bible, at least at this point in my life. And it says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now here's why I struggle. Because I want stuff. I love simple pleasures. I love vegging. I love nice, shiny things. I like nice, quality clothes made ethically. <laughs> That's true. But that is a challenge upon the human condition. And the clear evidence that I know is that I can lean into depending upon those things for my comfort rather than leaning into Jesus who promises me that he will be my comfort. I think it's the great challenge of the North American life for those of us that are middle to upper class that understand this. And even for those of us that might find ourselves in a lower class is we have things that the greater portion of our world does not have. Simple pleasures, simple luxuries that we take for granted that actually can be a double-edged sword of where we place our comfort and trust. And I know the clear evidence, but yet I still struggle, I still drift. It's like that of a ship. Now, I am no captain. I have my boat license. Don't really trust me too much on that. I did the online test. There is no practical test with getting a boat license. You go online, you fill out the thing, you hope you pass. I did. I have a boat license. Woohoo! But I'm not, if you have a boat, don't be like, oh, Matt has a boat license. Let's invite him out. Like, I, I will really need some help. Uh, you're going to have to show me before I'm actually going to take over being captain. That said, what many people understand about boats being upon the water is that boats have the propensity to drift. And so captains are constantly needing to adjust back. And the scriptures and what our author is saying here is that the Christian life is like that of a ship on water. You're either drifting away or you need to be course correcting towards. There's no such thing as fence sitting. Because the natural inclination of your heart is going to be dri to drift, even if there's clear evidence. It's like that of physical fitness. And many people, you know, as the new year begins, are like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really, you know, give it a go. Which I think is amazing. Um, but many people who take that on are like, I'm going to start going to the gym, you know, three, three days a week before you were doing nothing. But you don't change your eating patterns. And you're kind of like, oh my goodness, like... 
I am not losing any weight. I mean, I feel a little bit stronger, but like I'm not losing weight. And uh, I mean, the first question naturally is to ask is, well, how are you doing with your eating patterns? Because you know that's the majority of it. And you know, many of us know this. (laughs) But it's like, no, I feel pretty good because I'm going three days a week. Like we have the propensity to drift despite the clear evidence. The human condition. The author is trying to make that clear to us. So the author is now going to continue in the following verses. For how do we argue, how is he going to argue for the reliance on the message of Christ versus the message of the angels, which, as I said, is likely not the, the thought you had when you woke up this morning. Verse 5. For it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Now, the author here, Again, you're you're like, what is he saying? The author here is trying to clarify a particular worldview that happened at the time. And the worldview at the time was that angels had dominion of the world. Now, the interesting point is that as we read the scriptures, God never, ever promises angels dominion over the created order. He actually promises another group dominion over the created order. And that group we learn about in Genesis 1 verse 26. This is what we read in Genesis 1, verse 26. It will be on the screen. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So who has God given dominion to? Us. The other is making a shocking point to these readers. It's not the angels that God has given the dominion over the world to. It's you. This is good. Verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you cared for him? For you made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now to a Jew at this time, they would immediately know that the author is quoting Psalm 8, in which David, this is a quote directly from Psalm 8, in which David is marveling at who God is and what God has given him to do. He's going, this is amazing. Look at the role that I have. It's so good that God has allowed me to be the one to have dominion, to have rule. Like, do you ever stop to think about that? That God has given me that simple joy in life, to have dominion, to have rule. Maybe you didn't get up today and realize that you're a ruler in some ways. The author continues. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So the summary of what the author is saying is that the angels are not given dominion over the earth. Humans are. So the question for us today is, how have humans done and having dominion over the world. A few statistics for us. Currently, one in ten people lack access to clean drinking water. Nearly half of the world's population, three billion people, live, less, live on less than two and a half dollars a day. Military spending worldwide totaled more than 1.6 trillion in 2015. At least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century. 108 million people 
Fashion is a 1.2 trillion global industry with more than 250 billion spent annually in the United States. 40 million people are enslaved worldwide, generating 150 billion in illicit profits for traffickers. A little closer to home, Canadians waste 7 billion kilograms of food every year. And then based upon a January 2013 study, Canadians produce more garbage per capita than any other country on earth. <laughs> How have we done? We've been given dominion. How have we done with our dominion? And here's how the author continues, verse 8b. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What is the author saying? We human beings have all rebelled and we failed in our role. So a little bit of summary. We have the propensity to drift, despite clear evidence, and we failed in the role that God has given us. It's a fairly bleak picture. Now, you might argue with me and say, I'm not that bad. I, I do my part. If we're graded on a curve, I'm at least on the uptick. But the problem is, we're all guilty. We're all contributors. There are no clean hands. And even your defensiveness shows your human plight and selfishness to save your, yourself at the expense of the guilty. So, Hebrews 2. <laughs> Really positive. What's the author setting us up for? He's building a case. He's building a case for the skeptical in the room. Oh, you think you can do it on your own? Let's see how you've done on your own. Here we go. Verse 9. What is God to do? He gave us dominion and we have failed. What's he to do? But, thank the Lord for this but. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. This is the first time, this is the first time that our author has used Jesus. Before this, he's been the son, the divine son. Here, just so we are clear, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What does God do to our human plight, to our pessimistic reality? He comes to earth, humbles himself, dies on a cross, and tastes death so that you and I don't have to. Now, the, the question is, if that's not enormously clear, as clearly our author wants to continue to build his case, he's now going to take verse 10 to 18 to clarify and says, okay, break this down for me. How does Jesus taste death for everyone? How does this work? What is the nature, what is the theological realities of this question? How does he make this work? How does he taste death for everyone? How does he offer us his grace? The author understands that sometimes simple answers don't work. We have to answer the tough questions. So he goes on in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, from whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, this is God the Father he's speaking about, should make the founder of their salvation 
perfect through suffering. Now, once again, a challenging language written to a culture in which we do not live to a Jewish audience. What is the author saying? The author is saying is that Jesus makes us new humans by entering into the suffering and the mess himself. We have to be completely remade because we have the propensity to drift. We need to be completely remade because we failed in our role. And according to God, the only way for that to be mended is for God himself to enter into the mess to make us new humans because our old humans, it's not going to work. As Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need a new self. So Jesus makes us new humans by entering into the suffering and the mess himself so he could bear the weight of suffering and mouse on himself. Our author goes on, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, praise God, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of Uh, I and the children of God has given me. So what's the second answer? How does Jesus make this salvation work? How does he taste death for everyone? Jesus enters into our common humanity and therefore is not ashamed of us. Jesus takes on flesh. I think sometimes, I know in my own life, I forget that Jesus was human that he experienced emotion, that he experienced pain, that he experienced temptation. And I think I do that because I I just want to continue to elevate him, which we need to do, but we must not forget that he also took on human flesh so he could identify with us and so that he could actually do what he came to do. He enters into our common humanity and therefore is not ashamed of us. Guaranteed, there are many of us here today that are struggling with shame. Because we're like, ah, Jesus can't handle me. Jesus can't handle this thing about me. Jesus knows and has seen that thing about you since before the foundation of the world, yet he still chose to die for you. And he enters into our common humanity, our human flesh, so that he could identify with us. So that he could know the emotion that you feel, the emotion that I feel, and to give us a new way forward. Verse 14, our author is just going to continue. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject through lifelong slavery. So how does this salvation work? Our author's going to say a third point. Through dying, (laughs) Jesus defeats death and the devil and offers forgiveness. How does the victory come? This is so countercultural. Through death. He overcomes death by dying himself. He dies for people and takes their curse. This is the upside-down kingdom of God. How do you overcome your enemy? You die for them. What? Remember what Jesus says, if anyone would gain his life, he must lose the one that he has. 
flips it. What does Jesus say of our enemies? Love your enemies. No. He can't really mean that. Love your enemies. How much do we spend on military spending globally? This is the way forward for humanity? How many people have been killed in the 20th century because of war? It's not working. The only way forward is death to self, pursuing a third way. And Jesus takes our curse upon himself so that we could walk away without the curse of death. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. Now this leans into a whole lot of imagery of the priests in the Old Testament, and we will get there in the coming weeks. But a short answer for us today is that Jesus becomes our mediator by becoming our faithful high priest. A little bit of context in the Old Testament was that the priest was the mediator between God and man and offered a sacrifice on their behalf. So what this text tells us is that Jesus mediates for us. He stands in the gap between God the Father and ourselves. He mediates, but then he not only mediates, he lies down and takes and is the sacrifice for us. So he not only mediates and gets a lamb to step in the way, he is the lamb. Now you might say, well, why do we need a mediator? Like, isn't God a loving God? And the short answer is yes, God is love, but God is also just. God is also holy. God is also perfect. And the fact that we have sinned and rebelled and have the propensity to drift in the opposite direction, that means that we are not holy and we need to become holy in order to be in his presence. So we need a mediator. We need a way to be in his presence because the reality is all of us are guilty and therefore we need a mediator because God has to have his wrath satisfied. And so as a result, Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. True justice is poured out on Jesus so that true justice does not need to be poured out on us. Romans 3, verses 23 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. This is a word that means the satisfaction of God's justice by his blood to be received by faith. So it's his blood that takes the penalty upon our himself. And how do we get to partake in what he has done? By faith in what he has done. So, breaking this whole chapter down, what has happened here? What is our review? One, we have the tendency and the propensity to drift despite clear evidence. Secondly, we have rebelled and failed in our role as those commissioned with dominion over the created order. And thirdly, there are tragic consequences for both of these realities. But, but, Jesus succeeds for us. Jesus succeeds for us. He does what we could not do. 
nor ever will be able to do. Now, this is key because you just heard me say that, but there's the skeptic inside of you that says, no, I need to earn my own salvation. It's the side that says, oh, maybe I'm not worthy. It's if I were to come and bring you in a million-dollar check. Initially, you'd be like, whoa, where did you get that money from? But then you'd go to, like, I'm not worthy. And so you'd think, okay, maybe, I, maybe when we leave this place, I'll hold the door open for him. Or maybe I'll drive him home. Maybe then I'll be worthy of the million dollars. I mean, that'd be an expensive door holding open in a drive. But we don't do well as human beings with grace, do we? Because we want to earn things. We want to feel like it's sort of ours. Yet the great Christian message and why it is different than every other religion and why it has this skeptic mind is that it says you cannot earn it yourself. It's a free and a gracious gift from God. He does what you could never do for yourself. So you can obey perfectly your entire life, but if you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've put your faith in yourself, and therefore eternity with Jesus is not your eternal reality because you're not going to want to trust him eternally if you haven't trusted him now. Death to self. You want to gain your life? Lose your life. Lose any desire within you to earn it. You might say, well, what do I do instead? Celebrate the fact that you've been loved. Recognize the incredible graciousness of the Father that he has given to you. Our author is going to ask the question now, how do we respond? Verse 18, close off his chapter. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The great point here is that Jesus not only succeeds for us, He also empathizes with us. The hero enters into the condition of his enemy to die for them. Like that has not been seen in a Marvel movie yet. Superman becomes the weird alien and dies for the alien. Like, no. It's always, I'm Superman, I'm going to conquer you alien. It's never incarnation. Yet this is the Christian hope. That Jesus not only succeeds for us, he now also empathizes with us. So what this means is that in our trials, in our temptation, we look to what Christ has endured. What this means is that in our spiritual drift, we need to pay closer attention to and obey God's word. Romans 10 verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I've yet to see anyone who seems to have a very healthy relationship with God and the Holy Spirit who is avoiding God's word. It's usually the opposite. The more you engage with his words, the more you engage with what he has placed before us, the healthier often our lives will be as we submit to him. So in our trials, we look to Christ. In our spiritual drift, we pay closer attention to his word. But I would say the deeper than that is that in the condition of our hearts, we must die to ourselves. But here's the thing. You're not going to want to die. I don't want to die when I see nice, shiny, cool, ethically made things. 
I'd rather go, no, it's cool. I have the finances I can make work to make this work. Death to self. And you know, I think this is one of the greatest apologetics of doing this all in community, right? That if I'm going to truly die to myself, I need other people around me that are going to go, hey, Matt, that thing that you did or that purchase you made the other day, what was that all about? Was that out of want or was that out of need? Hey, Matt, the, the vegging that you've been done with Netflix recently, is that out of a healthy place or is that out of a really unhealthy place of escapism? Are you trying to live the lives of other people in television shows and in mystery? Hey, Matt, I, I noticed there that you didn't speak all that well to Andrea. What's that all about? Because you seem to have the propensity to not speak nicely to her. Are you doing okay? When you do life in community, you're, you're, you're just saying, hey, I, I, need to, I need you guys to call me out. Because I have the propensity to drift. Even when all the evidence is clear. And I need you to remind me where my salvation is found. Because I'm trying to find it in me. But I need to die. Why? So that Christ might be seen in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Hebrews 2. And God, you know the anxiety I felt about this text earlier in the week because it is intense. But Lord, I thank you for what this order, who we do not know the name of, and the clarity that this person had in the truth of who you are and therefore can break it down for us as far as what it means to actually pursue Jesus here in the here and now to understand the consequences of our rebellion and how desperately we need you. So God, I pray for the skeptic in the room today who's believing in their own salvation. Might you stop them? Might they submit to you? Might they recognize the guilt, Lord, the, the, the punishment and the consequence of sin. And may they, instead of rather than living in that, realize that you have taken that from them, but that comes through faith in hearing and responding and trusting in you. So Jesus, I thank you that you have taken and that you have done what we could not do for ourselves. I thank you that you are the better Adam, you're the better Abraham and Moses, and you're the better Matt. You took my place. And so may we respond now in worship to you, Jesus, the better. In your son's name we pray, amen.